With a piece in my hand and bloodshot eyes, I walk to the water for a last goodbye. He begs so much, it clouded my mind. One thing's clear, the man's gotta die. This is Motion, and you're listening to Sage on Sage. All right, welcome to that. We are live here at Sage News, and I have brought in a major, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Joe Brown from Heresy Financial. Um, I've also brought some backup because I knew he, I was going to need it. Um, Jack from Nobody Special Finance, and we're going to ask some questions. And I think one of the first questions I want to ask is, your channel is is really shot, blown up, and what kind of made you get into doing the YouTube thing? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, we'll have a good time here. Um, back in uh, when I first got married, first started my career, my wife and I were broke. We had a ton of debt. I was actually making less than minimum wage. And so I realized, okay, I need to do something about this. So I started looking into personal money management, debt snowball, stuff like that. Uh, and then it just kind of lit a fire in me. I was like, oh, this is what I enjoy. So I weaseled my way into a job as a stockbroker, did that for a number of years until I learned everything I could. And really during that time, like I've got a really curious personality. And so I kept on trying to figure out, hey, how does this whole thing work? How does the money machine work? How does the economy work? How do all these things fit together? Um, all these cogs of the machine. Um, and the more I learned from inside the industry, the more I realized that didn't make sense. Uh, the standard mainstream way of, you know, understanding how, you know, how the economy works, just the pieces weren't fitting together. Um, and so then that led me down the path of trying to figure out, you know, uh, you know, a lot of like Austrian economic uh, economics and, um, really trying to figure out how these things worked. And I realized, oh my gosh, like I've been kind of like, you know, telling people one thing, live in one way, uh, you know, as if this is reality. And I realized reality is very different. Uh, and it got to a point where I couldn't continue doing what I was doing anymore. So I uh, went out on my own and I uh, started doing a bunch of things. And my YouTube channel is the one that kind of, uh, I, you know, succeeded uh, first in front of those other things. So that's when I started focusing on my YouTube channel. And it's been about, uh, it's been about two years now where I've been focused, um, you know, really on uh, growing my YouTube channel. Well, that that's intense because you are a fantastic researcher in regards to breaking this stuff down and diving into this stuff. And then you bring a lot of receipts to make sure that you say, Hey, this is what's happening. Let me show you. And, and that's, you know, I do it on a different angle, but you definitely do it in this. So <laughs> I'm going to jump into some of the questions because I know some of our time is limited. So let me ask you a first question. I'm going to pop up. How does something like this happen? How does this <laughs> happen? If you can break this down. So this happened today and, and, and I was I'm like, oh, my God, is this not perfect to ask him when he comes on? So how does somebody like this person, her name, uh, Yellen, which basically mm -hmm. saying something like, well, look, I think I was wrong about the path that inflation would take. The Treasury Secretary said when asked about previous comments, as I mentioned, there are a lot of unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that have boosted energy, food prices and supply bottlenecks that have affected our economy badly um, that I didn't at the time didn't fully understand but recognize now. So my question is I'm in logistics, right? And when we, it's very easy for me to see that this was going to be a problem. We're giving out free money. We're dumping all this, you know, stimulus stuff in there. People are out there buying a massive amounts of stuff. Containers are coming in. Like there's no tomorrow. How do they, how does this process work? How do they say something like that? 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, part of it is uh, kind of what I described about, uh, you know, when you're inside the belly of the beast, you, uh, you, you, uh, you're drinking the Kool-Aid and all of these people like Yellen and Powell and everybody who works at the Fed and everybody who has worked there before. And they've all come from this very small circle of, uh, you know, there, there are these ivory tower elites studied under the exact same small umbrella of, uh, of, uh, their understanding of the way that the economy works. Um, and, uh, and so because of that, they have these broken models and a very, um, uh, incorrectly sophisticated understanding about the way that the economy works. And one, one, one thing, a, a very, uh, uh, simple example of this is the, uh, the idea that you can, uh, control, uh, uh, the way that the economy rolls along by uh, by ch by changing uh, inputs, and so uh, and so they look at interest rates and they look at their balance sheet and they say, okay, we can raise and lower interest rates, we can increase and decrease our balance sheet, and with these few tools, uh, they think that they can control things like employment and uh, wages and the debt in the system and the risk in the system and prices and inflation, and that's just not the case. You can't control it. You can influence it, but you can't control it. And so they look at this, uh, even from like the, one of the free market, um, people who look at, you know, look at Milton Friedman as a huge advocate of free markets. He was way off about monetary policy. Um, uh, he was basically saying that, Hey, if we have, uh, you know, a depression, then we want to expand the money supply. And then when we have a boom, we want to subtract the money supply, uh, make it elastic. And uh, the problem with that is that you have a blunt force instrument on a complex system, and that's going to have unforeseen consequences. It's going to have uh, like a domino effect throughout the economy, um, and you're messing with things that have uh, second and third order effects that might be even larger than the initial impact of those, uh, of, of those dials, of those tools. Uh, so that's a very broad uh, overview of why they uh, why, why they think how they could be so wrong about this is because number one that's all they've ever known um, and uh, number two they uh, the, it's it's very wrong their approach to it and their models. Yeah, because it, it seems like it seems to be a lot more of the fact that it's not just hammer nail done right. It, there's a lot of other you know. Um, mental with it like mindset and understanding people and understanding things that they just don't seem to grasp that well they just say here's my hammer i'm done and i i just that's when i saw that come out i'm like oh my god i'm in i'm a logistics for 20 years and i saw it coming how, how did you not see it coming? so but i think i want to thank you for that breakdown i have um i want to jump on one more and i'm going to hand it over to jack I, I, I saw your video for your non-love for the central bank uh, digital currency. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and, and I absolutely agree with you 100%. But my question is, how can people or maybe a country or anybody possibly feel, even other countries, because let's say we did a global one, right, where they, that's what they wanted to do. At that point, if we wanted to, whoever controls that can actually shut countries off if they wanted to, like we see in Russia and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Why would any what is the any positive with with a country going to that to that system? Like, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, why would you do that? If I, Even if I'm a country, I don't want other people being able to say, hey, we're turning you off. Right. Positive. I know the negative. Yeah. But I'm negative. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's the you could ask the exact same question uh, about why 
the system exists as it currently does because it's the exact same way uh, right now. And so uh, just to take a step back, everybody's working or many countries are working on their own central bank digital currencies right now. Uh, the problem with a central bank digital currency is that it's built on entirely new technology compared to the way that their monetary system exists today. Um, and that will give the countries who implement CBDCs greater control over monetary and fiscal policy in their countries. The problem with that for international trade is that if you have your CBDC built on an entirely different set of technologies as a different country, it can make cross-border payments very difficult. And so SWIFT right now is coming in and saying, hey, look, we already provide the plumbing between countries for international trade right now. Let's make sure that we uh, transition, help everybody transition to CBDCs and maintain the ease of doing international trade right now as they flip over to their CBDCs. We want to make sure that SWIFT has the rails for CBDCs built in already so that as a country flips over to a CBDC, they can still engage in international trade the same way they do today. So that's why they would sign up for it is because it'd basically be like, yeah, we already use SWIFT for internet, you know, to make cross-border payments right now. We want to be able to continue to do that. And uh, they're already subject to potential sanctions in the future right now. Same thing in the future. So it wouldn't really change anything from the status quo. So they're just looking for the new norm and they just want to be a part of it early on, basically. Okay. Because that to me, it's like, you're nuts. You're out of your mind. This, that is the, uh, and you're, 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 when you, I saw the video where you described, and, and I'll probably put a link to that one, the, the Bitcoin, it made sense to me with the basically, Hey, we're, we got a bulletin board. Here's all the money. Here's the secret bulletin mm -hmm. board that you can't see. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. okay, I want to go with the, this one. I want to go with this one. Um, but, and that's why I just, I was shocked. Like what, if I'm a country, it's like, Oh my God, I, I, putting that into people's other people's hands can be scary let alone my hand my money being cut off i don't want it on a personal level so i want to yeah. thank you for answering that and go ahead jack your turn i can't let yellen off the hook that easy can you can you bring <laughs> that quote from yellen back up because that really that really grinds my gears where was All it right he said uh there have been unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that have boosted energy and food prices. Unanticipated and large shocks, right? So it seems to me that Yellen is saying, yeah, we got it wrong on inflation. But she seems to be repeating some political talking points, i.e., oh, it was because of the pandemic. It was because of Putin. It was because of the supply chain. I, do you think, does she really believe this? Does she really believe that it's all these seemingly exigent circumstances or is someday a central banker going to say we just printed too much money and we caused inflation the the obvious answer right the giant expansion of the balance sheet yeah it, it depends so you can take a look at this one of two ways it's either incompetence or it's malevolence uh, because if they didn't know what the results of their actions would be, then that's incompetence because they should have known. If they did know and they did it anyway, then that's malevolence because they caused a lot of pain and suffering and hurt. Um, either way, <laughs> the results happen. They did it. And so many times incompetence and malevolence look the same uh, in terms of their results. So personally, I don't tend to get caught up in trying to figure out uh, one or the other because um, really all that matters to me is the result. And so I'm going to navigate the result. I'm not going to uh, navigate the intent. That doesn't change things for me. 
Um, the second thing about it is that when you get to the top of a complex system, you are very removed uh, from the outputs. And so I, I call them ivory tower elites all the time because they really are isolated from everything like the business cycle. So there's this great book by Daniel DiMartino Booth called Fed Up. She's a former Federal Reserve employee. She worked at the Fed. She was an insider there. And she describes many things that happened. And like, number one, during the financial crisis, there was no change inside. It was still the free lunches. It was still all the day-to-day. -day. You, you uh, clock in and clock out at your exact times. There's no hustle. There's no, it's like, it's a government job. It's great benefits, great pay, completely isolated from the ups and downs, the booms and busts of the business world. Uh, when Wall Street was scrambling, people were getting laid off and fired. None of that is happening behind the doors at the Federal Reserve. They hire pure academics who the only thing that they're concerned about is, uh, you know, their own research and looking at all of the data that they can find and trying to compile it. And so number one, as people, they're very removed from society. They have absolutely no idea what it's like to live as a normal American. They don't have, they've never had any real jobs. They've never created any real value for society. They've never gone out there and had to hustle. They've never gone out there and had to build a business. They've never been a contributor in terms of even the taxes that they pay out of their salary. Their salaries are basically paid by the printing of money or by, you know, taxes, whichever way you want to look at it. So these are 100% economic leeches on society that do not provide any value to society whatsoever. So that's their life is removed and everything they look at is also removed. All of this data, massive amount of data that's distilled and compiled and looked at in terms of trying to put this data, find small correlations with this data set and this data set and this data set. And it's very backward looking because in order for you to be able to compile all that data, a lot of time has to go by and you have to rely on a lot of things being correct, which many times there are huge uh, margins of errors in these data sets. And so all they're doing is taking all this old, stale, removed, uh, compiled and distilled data, putting it together and trying to come up with these forecasts that are based on flawed economic models. And now you can see how it's like they had no idea that expanding the monetary supply by 25 percent in one year would result in the largest inflation we've had in 40 years. Um, and so I, I, I think there's a very good case to say, yeah, they didn't know what the consequences of their actions would be. But even if they did. And even if they were saying, hey, yes, this is going to cause prices to rise, but we need to bail out the banks, we need to bail out the corporations, we need to bail out the government, whatever it is, um, it doesn't matter. The results are the same. It's almost a Marie Antoinette, you know, let him eat cake kind of scenario. Sounded like a reasonable thing to say to her, I'm sure. But when you spend that much time removed from society, you lose mm -hmm. touch with reality. Yeah. Now, I hear Powell talk a lot about that he has confidence he can engineer a soft landing, right? That's that's one of his talking points that you hear over and over again during his speeches. And I'm assuming by a soft landing, Powell is talking about being able to fight inflation without just blowing out the economy and causing a recession or even a depression. Can you imagine any possible scenario? Does, does that needle even exist that he could thread that perfectly that we pull this off? No. Zero chance. <laughs> and so here, here's why. Like you, you, you look at the response that caused the overcorrection uh, to, to, for the boom. Um, 
they're they all of their data is very old and stale and backwards looking number one and again it's it's far removed and so uh what we're what we saw back then was hey they were scared things were gonna crash too much they were scared of a deflationary death spiral they were scared of debt defaults rolling across the economy and so they did what they thought was necessary but they way overshot and so now what we're seeing is the exact same thing in the other direction now you might look at the quantitative tightening that's starting this month in June, you know, letting the balance sheet uh, run off at $90 billion a month. You might look at the interest rate hikes of a half of a percent at a time. And you can, you might say that will not have any meaningful impact on inflation. And you might be right, but it's not just one or the other. So we have to take everything into account. Number one, the money supply stopped expanding about six months to a year ago. The money supply was growing at a massively fast rate historically, fastest that we've ever had. That fell off of a cliff the moment Biden got in office, all spending ground to a halt. They couldn't pass any of the spending they wanted to. So Biden was just out there a couple of days ago bragging about the sharpest decline in the federal deficit um, in, in, in history, I think, $1.7 trillion reduction in the deficit. Um, that was not on purpose. They've been trying to spend a ton of money and they haven't been able to. Also, you have the inflation causing prices to go up and that caused a bunch of new uh, income revenue for the government. And so the deficit shrinking, the government's not spending money and they're sucking a lot of money out of the economy from their borrowing and their taxes. So the federal government is engaging in a deflationary force on, uh, on uh, our economy right now, sucking money out of the system. The Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. That causes debt to get paid off. That causes the chance for debt defaults. That causes debt to get sold. That causes asset prices to go down. That is a deflationary force. They are also selling assets. That pushes the price of assets down. That pushes, again, interest rates up. And it sucks cash out of the system as they sell assets and take cash in return. That is a deflationary force. They are also keeping the reverse repo rate above the federal funds rate. That's still sucking cash into the reverse repo facility. That's sucking cash out of the system. And so we are seeing from every angle right now. And then all those combined, they're, they're, the corporations and financial institutions are saying, we need to be safe. We need to stop spending money. We need to batten down the hatches because we're about to enter some hard times. Like Jamie Dimon just came out today and said, a hurricane is coming. And right. so when everybody stops spending money, money goes into savings. That's like the same thing as money getting sent off to Mars. If money exits circulation and doesn't come back in, at least temporarily, that means the money supply goes down. And so we are seeing from every angle right now, massive deflationary forces. Now it takes time for these things to work themselves into an economy, but we have to recognize that the monetary supply stopped growing six months ago at the, uh, at the latest. And so when you take all these things into account, we are experiencing a really large deflationary storm right now. Now, you may say that's not enough to counteract the inflationary forces. And fine, we can talk about that. But there are a lot of deflationary forces right now, and it is a tightrope. And so when you look at the inflationary forces from the last two, two and a half years on one side, and the massive deflationary forces that they're using policy-wise right now coming against each other, you're going to tip one way or the other. And the fact that asset prices have been falling since the beginning of this year speaks to me, like the Cantillon effect, that asset prices get from hit from deflation and inflation first. That bleeds over to prices of goods and services and then wages. 
my expectations would be that we start to see uh, inflation numbers come down very quickly and layoffs and unemployment happen pretty soon after that, as long as another bailout doesn't happen. But no, no, uh, no soft landing. They're overcorrecting in the uh, deflationary direction. Now, you talked a lot about deflation there, and I hear it said a lot in you know, the mainstream financial press a lot that deflation is like this boogeyman, this, this worst-case economic scenario. Oh, we can't have deflation, and it's never challenged. Actually, you're the only person I've ever heard challenge that deflation was a bad thing. And I've, I've heard some things on your channel that actually make a very good case for deflation. Could you talk a little bit about that and why people maybe shouldn't be afraid of it? Yeah, absolutely. Deflation is a good thing. I am not scared about deflation at all. Deflation is the cure for the malinvestment. Uh, what is scary is the response that we will have to inflation. And I haven't been worried about hyperinflation uh, up till this date, but if we get deflation and then a response to it, similar to the response we've gotten every time for the last 20 years, then I will actually be worried about real technical hyperinflation and a collapse of the dollar. So the reason why deflation is not scary is because prices coming down are good, historically speaking, for everybody long term. Number one, you have natural deflation over time. So technology and progress and wealth growth, that means stuff gets more abundant relative to the supply of money. That means money becomes more valuable relative to all the stuff. That means things get cheaper. That's what happens when something becomes abundant. When cell phones went from scarce to abundant, they got cheaper. When TVs went from scarce to abundant, they got cheaper. When food went from scarce to abundant, it got cheaper. We don't have to spend all of our day working for one meal anymore. We spend all of our day working for multiple meals and clothing and shelter and luxuries. And so stuff is abundant. That's deflation. That's happened for all of human history. We have a monetary system that's built on inflation. So it tries to counteract the natural overwhelming force of history. And so it tries to cause prices to go up, which is in contrast to nature. And so that's why we have these big booms and collapses because we've got natural deflationary forces being built up over time. And we have these bursts of inflation that are tried that we try and impose on our society that ultimately fail. Um, either way though, when we're talking about natural deflation or deflationary death spiral or inflation or hyperinflation, what we're really looking at is leverage and deleveraging. When we leverage up, the deleveraging is inevitable. Now, sometimes when we look back through history, we see an inflationary deleveraging, like a hyperinflation, like in Weimar Republic in Germany. Um, other times we see a deflationary deleveraging. But what's really going on at the core is that the entire economy overextended itself, spent more than it should have and more than it had. And there was a reduction in the amount of real resources and real capital that was available to everybody. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're measuring stick during that time is shrinking or expanding. The measuring stick really doesn't change reality. In reality, whether prices are going up and down, in reality, we levered up, we spent way more than we should have, the savings pool is small, and we are going through a time of scarcity, whether that looks like inflation or deflation. That's why every time you look at hyperinflation, whether it's Argentina, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, 
uh, Lebanon right now, Turkey right now, you see the same exact symptoms in real everyday life as you would in a deflationary depression. You see resources are scarce. Food is scarce. People can't afford things. It doesn't matter what the prices are, whether prices are collapsing or skyrocketing. We see unemployment or underemployment, all the same symptoms. The only thing that's different is people look at prices going up or prices going down, but the real life symptoms are the same. So if you had to, I mean, I know we're running short on time here. If you had to place a bet, right? You have $1 and you can wager it one way or another. Deflationary death spiral or the money printers come back on and hyperinflation. What do you think is the more that's, likely scenario? That's a heck of a bet. I ain't going to lie. <laughs> only buck. Yeah. The only buck. You better yeah. hope it's deflation. You only got $1 left. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. If you have $1 left, you hope it's deflation. If you are poor, if you are middle class, if you are not the top 1%, you hope we get deflation because prices of everything come down. You have cash. You get to buy cheap houses. You get to buy cheap stocks. You get wealthier in the long run. And the people who are over leveraged, overspent, didn't save, overextend themselves, took too many risks. They go bust. They go bankrupt. And all the assets get transferred to the more conservative and the safer and the more responsible people in society. And then we rebuild from a better foundation. I don't think that's what's going to happen, though. <laughs> if I had to make a bet, um, we are going to get a uh, I, I'm actually going to I'm putting together a video on this right now that'll come out, I think, next week. But I'm I'm expecting that the Federal Reserve will try in, in, in conjunction with the Treasury will try and thread the needle in a way where we do not get a rolling spiral of defaults and a deflationary death spiral. Um, while at the same time, the average American experiences a lot of pain similar to a deep recession or a depression. So here's how that would look. Right now, if we continue on the current course, everything collapses. Bankruptcies, defaults, uh, mass unemployment, uh, everything just collapses. Assets you know, go to you know, close to zero, everything. Um, in that scenario, the federal government defaults on its debt. In that scenario, the entire global financial system completely implodes. I don't think they're going to let that happen. But they also are looking at very recent history from the last two years, and they don't want to uh, cause hyperinflation. They don't want to risk prices skyrocketing, going, you know, inflation hitting 10, 15, 20, 50%. And so what I think they're going to do here is the first thing that they're going to do is start expanding their balance sheet again. They'll continue to raise rates. They will start expanding their balance sheet. Say it again. How high do you think? Just an estimate. Um, I, I think they're going to continue to go along with inflation. And so if the inflation numbers stay where they've been, they'll continue to hike rates by a half a half a percent every time. Okay. The reason why I think they're going to do that is because technically they can raise rates as high as they want and keep them high for as long as they want, as long as they are buying treasuries. Okay. Because if they're buying treasuries, it doesn't matter if the rest of the world sells the treasuries. It doesn't matter if interest rates on government debt hits 5%, 10%, 20%. If all that is owned by the Federal Reserve, that debt is interest-free to the government. Because the Federal Reserve sweeps its profits back to the Treasury. And so the Federal Reserve will virtually monetize all government debt. And so then the federal government can spend any amount of money that they want as long as Congress passes the spending, uh, spending limits. 
Right. And and uh, they don't have to worry about a default. So they maintain the dollar's uh, re global reserve currency status or at least faith in the dollar by avoiding a default. The next thing that they will uh, try and do because they'll encounter this is companies will start to get in trouble because company debt will start to implode. You'll have debt service costs get too high. They won't be able to service their debt. And so what you're going to have the Federal Reserve do at that time is resume buying corporate debt through uh, special purpose vehicles held at the Treasury, uh, like with ETFs like HYG and uh, some of those things that they did during 2020. They'll resume that again to make sure that large corporations don't go out of business from their uh, debt getting, uh, getting too low and their debt costs getting too high. Now, that will be a temporary, uh, um, uh, temporary band-aid on the problem, but it won't completely solve it because asset prices like stocks will continue to dive. And so at that point, then, um, what the Federal Reserve will do is they'll look at this and so they'll say, hey, we don't want uh, uh, massive uh, problems from equity prices getting too low because that hurts the ability for pensions to uh, stay solvent. That hurts the ability for these corporations that have been relying on their stock price to be able to do certain things, fund their daily business uh, uh, cash flow. And so they're going to start buying uh, stocks through ETFs like SPY. At that point, then, you have the federal government fully funded by the printer, and you have large corporations fully funded by the printer. Any large corporation then can continue to issue stock, knowing that there's a floor under its price, and there's a floor under its price because there's a buyer with a money printer. And so large corporations will have the ability to fund their expenses through the issuance of stock, and the federal government will be able to fund its expenses through the Federal Reserve's money printer. Um, all of this means that everyday Americans will still feel a lot of pain. Prices still going up, uh, not being able to afford things, uh, scarce resources, uh, but they'll avoid the massive immediate impact of you know everything kind of collapsing at once. Um, and uh, really, it'll be a bailout for the government and the corporations, and it won't be another 2020 repeat of a bailout for everybody. Wow. Did you well, describe a total nationalization of the entire economy by the Federal Reserve? Is that well, pre well, pretty almost, <laughs> almost. So, so yes, because if the federal government, <laughs> excuse me, if the federal government through the Treasury. Uh, is able to acquire uh, large enough stakes in companies through purchasing their stocks, then yes, there's more control over uh, over these corporations, especially just even the threat of dumping the stock. Um, and so, yes, 100%, there is an element of nationalization of, uh, of economies uh, and uh, industries through this process. And typically, when we look back through history, you tend to see stuff like this. Maybe the steps are a little bit different. Maybe the mechanisms are a little bit different, but you tend to see central banks uh, and uh, and central governments coordinate together really tightly, monetary policy, fiscal policy merge basically. And you also see a nationalization of industries that are in trouble that the government says we need to take it over so we can make sure it doesn't collapse and people still get whatever they need. And so you tend to see this happen many times throughout history. That's the way I think it could unfold very likely here. And, and that's where I hear the word stockholder rather than uh, I'm sorry, stakeholder rather than stockholder come in. And that's a part yeah. of something else we can't mention because I'll get flagged. Um, sure. that, 
that, that definitely sounds well. Thank you for ruining my the rest of my night. So, <laughs> no. Besides that, I, um, I know your time was short here, and I do want to thank you came on, and I I've learned a lot. So, if you guys want to get your last words in, um, we'll pretty much end this one here. Uh, I just want to say real quick, Joe, thank you for coming on. Uh, I still watch every video you put out. I learn something every time. So keep up the awesome work. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Hashtag. Uh, do you want to run the Fed? Uh, Joe, hashtag Joe Brown runs the Fed. Put you in charge instead because that might you, work out. If you put me in charge, I'll have that job for exactly one day because the first thing I'll do <laughs> is shut it down. So I'd, I'd rather end the Fed than lead the Fed. <laughs> All right. On that note, we're going to end this one here. Thanks, everybody, for stopping me in and, and checking us out. This is, And uh, as always, stay safe. Sage out. Hey, this is Sage. And if you're looking for one of the best factoring deals at one of the best factoring rates, go ahead and shoot me a text or an email. I got a factoring rate of under 2% with one of the best factoring companies out there. Um, they sat down with me. I've been with them for quite a long time myself. And we were able to negotiate a rate. Um, it's an affiliate link, so I get uh, it helps out the show, and you get one of the best factoring rates out there. Trust me. Shoot me a text. Shoot me an email. I'll get you all hooked up. See ya.